The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm James Walcock. Now, the past 24 hours have perhaps been some of the busiest of Rishi Sunak's tenure because we have a major foreign policy issue. Overnight, the Prime Minister authorised military airstrikes on Houthi rebels in Yemen alongside the United States and the European uh, Union, or European uh, Union countries at least. And this morning, the Prime Minister's in Ukraine announcing a £2.5 billion package of aid uh, for Vladimir Zelensky over the coming year. And all of this, against the backdrop of the International Courts of Justice um, where there is a historic case taking place actually right now accusing Israel of committing a genocide in Gaza. There is a lot for the Prime Minister to be thinking about today, James. And it's been building for quite a while, Caroline. We sort of Red Sea tensions we've been covering on this podcast. But then it all came to a head late last night. Rishi Sunak held a cabinet call. The journalists got wind off. Speculation began. Then they called in Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, and the Shadow Defence Secretary, John Healy, and finally the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle. The government, though, insists these strikes are a justified act of self-defence. Here's Armed Forces Minister James Heapy. No matter what you think of the Houthi argument about uh, you know, their support for, for Hamas. Um, we can't allow the Houthis to ransom the free flow of global trade in order to make that point. And that was the armed forces minister there who didn't rule out further strikes. Mm, well, some of the um, opposition politicians, though, are concerned, of course, because Parliament wasn't consulted about this action. Labour Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy thinks that the decision uh, needed to be made, having said that. Have a listen to some of what he said this morning. We accept this, however, was limited action. We accept that the timing was not in the hands of the UK government and what we expect now is the Prime Minister to come to the House of Commons at the earliest opportunity on Monday to explain what the action aims to do. That's a clear split between Healy, who was in those talks, was invited into Cabinet last Mm. night alongside Keir Starmer, and those like John McDonnell or Jeremy Corbyn on the left who have already condemned these attacks and Parliament's lack of say. Further illustrating, this is in some ways a together approach between Labour and the Conservatives, at least at the top levels. Now, there is no legal need for the Prime Minister to let MPs vote on military action, and Labour seems unlikely to demand one for the reasons I just just set out. But if you go back, there are two recent parallels on interventions on the Middle East. There is Syria in 2013 and obviously Iraq Tony Blair's major war then Mm. for David Cameron in 2013 Iraq had made the idea of military intervention so toxic he put the vote to the MPs and lost 
OK, but this isn't on that scale, is what I would retort to that. And Jeremy Corbyn's also yesterday's man. And Keir Starmer's, you know, right at the beginning of the Israel-Hamas uh, war, tried to make a clear break between his administration and, and Corbyn. I mean, it's not on that scale yet. I mean, this is a thin mm. conflict in the Middle East. will spiral and spiral. As many will say, these things will go on. I mean, one of the things here, though, is it's a fascinating quirk of UK politics at the moment that we get to hear David Cameron, who back, you know, back in 2013 made the case to MPs and lost now speaking as foreign secretary. I mean, here he is earlier this week, once again, defending his foreign policy record to MPs in Parliament. We need a concrete plan of support for that government and a plan to help reform and support the Palestinian Authority. We've got to see a massive reconstruction plan for for Gaza. And crucially, we've got to see a political horizon towards a two-state solution. So to come back to your question, Caroline, of you, know, this isn't on the scale of those previous mm. crises. I mean, the question for David Cameron today and the rest of the UK government is, can they contain this crisis to a one-off strike? Or will Britain be dragged once again into an intervention alongside the US in the Middle East? Well, not so fast, I would say, to that. You use the word spiral. I actually think that a lot of players are being immensely, immensely careful. Having said that, the Houthi reaction that has come in at least um, verbally, the Houthis Supreme Ruling Political Council saying now that all US and UK interests have become legitimate targets. Um, This is actually a change in terms of the approach uh, because the Houthis had so far said that they were targeting vessels in the Red Sea um, through the Suez Canal vessels with ties to Israel. So it does sort of show the deepening fallout from the Israel-Hamas war on the wider region. Having said that also from the kind of economics perspective, uh, from the kind of market reading of this, oil markets did push up oil prices by two, two and a half percent in the wake of this. But that isn't an immense move when you think about oil prices, frankly. In a moment, we're speaking to Bloomberg's Mark Champion about this. But the first question is whether these airstrikes will work. American and British forces targeted 16 locations in Yemen. We've been discussing this with Jane Kinnamont, who is the Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network. Stephen Carroll and Lizzie Burden started by asking her if these airstrikes will put a stop to the fighting or signify the beginning of further conflict. Certainly not the end. And this is all happening in the context of the ongoing war in Gaza and wider tensions between the US and Iran. And so we're going to see further tensions and escalation in the region, but it's a question of kind of how and when these things play out. Now, looking at the Houthis themselves, you know, as you mentioned, they've withstood Saudi attacks, they think that they are on a winning streak. They've gone in two decades from being a marginal guerrilla group in the mountains of Yemen that was fighting the Yemeni government to being a group that is suddenly hugely popular in the Arab world for the first time in its existence because it's seen as an Arab force that is imposing strategic costs on Israel and the West as a response to what's happening in Gaza. Now, they have a larger agenda than that. They want to exert power. They're close to Iran. But right now, they are quite popular. And that is constraining the response because generally, Arab countries don't want to get involved in this coalition curbing attacks. Jane, what does that mean then for how the UK and the US could I suppose, develop, escalate their campaign from here? Should we be expecting more airstrikes? Is there a chance of further action beyond that? 
it's still quite unclear how this will play out and how effective the overnight strikes have been in degrading the Houthis' capacities to to respond. Uh, but I think it's likely that this won't end here, but that also there will be a limit on how directly the US and UK want to get involved in that they will not want to be sending any troops uh, into Yemen, you know, where there's a fairly unsuccessful history of foreign intervention and indeed the the UK uh, left rather quickly um, when it was a kind of colonial power there. But what they will be doing really is pressing Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar and other Arab countries to join them in reigning in the Houthis. There are other levers that can be used other than airstrikes as well. The Houthis are trying to make a peace deal with Saudi Arabia partly because you know, they want to be able to get some Saudi aid and get some money, you know. So there will be efforts by countries like Saudi Arabia and Oman to come to some kind of accommodation with the Houthis. There just is this question about whether the airstrikes will actually disrupt uh, those processes and make it harder to find a, a political way out. It will depend also on what is happening with some of the the wider network of Iran-backed militias that the Houthis are a part of. They're not kind of owned by Iran. They're not fully controlled by Iran, but they are aligned with, you know, Hezbollah and with these groups in Iraq that are also exchanging fire with Israel and the US, respectively. So there's a much wider regional power play going on. Yeah, joining the dots, does this escalation make a peace deal between Israel and Hamas actually harder to achieve? This is a really interesting question, but right now there is basically no political process aimed at peace between Israel and either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. Um, so I think it doesn't really it doesn't really change very much. It probably doesn't change Israel's calculations hugely, and Israel will be pleased that the US and UK are at the forefront um, of this response, and that the, you know the West is positioning this as an international problem and not as a problem specifically for Israel. What does that mean, though, in terms of? Iran and what we might expect in terms of a response from Tehran? Iran has a strategy of supporting other groups to essentially further its aims and so that it can stay out of the way uh, to some extent itself. You know, so for Iran, you know, it is it is pleased to see that uh, the Houthis are taking action and it it won't suffer any costs from the airstrikes either so iran probably sees this as a win-win jane while all of this has been going on rishi sunak's touched down in kiev this morning is it fair to say that the uk has equally divided its focus between ukraine and the middle east there is always an issue in high-level politics that whatever the current crisis of the day is consumes the majority of high-level bandwidth. And so it's quite important that Rishi Sunak is making that visit. It is definitely designed to send a strong signal uh, that the UK can walk and chew gum at the same time, as it were. 
Um, but, you know, there are many worries about how long the focus on Ukraine will be sustained. Also questions about whether, you know, there's a war in the offing in the next year or two um, over Taiwan and what that means. So we are definitely seeing a sense in Ukraine that there is uh, distraction um, for Western governments. And of course, they're looking ahead too to the US election and the possibility of having a much less supportive US administration. That was Jane Kinnamont, who is the Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network, speaking to Stephen and Lizzie earlier. And so after strikes against Yemen, now this development that the Houthi rebels have said all US and UK interests are now legitimate targets. Let's discuss with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Mark Champion, who's been following the story for us this morning. Um, Great to have you with us, Mark. Look, the US-led maritime force didn't work as a deterrent. Will airstrikes... Well, that's a really good question. I mean, essentially, uh, this uh, response was sort of inevitable. Politically, uh, in an election year, uh, uh, President Biden just couldn't not do it. Um, It's been pretty clear that he was hesitating. He didn't want to. Uh, You know, his main concern, uh, rightly, I think, is to avoid uh, the, the war in Gaza from escalating into a regional war. Um, so, uh, you know, every time uh, you add a, a new uh, kinetic military action to the mix, uh, you know, you're adding further um, things you can't control. So, uh, you know, he, he was hesitating uh, and the Houthis uh, essentially just, you know, forced his hand um, uh, and it was inevitable. But it's absolutely right that, you know, uh, while there's no question that U- U.S. Uh, pilots and, and ships and, and British pilots, you know, they have, have the best training and equipment in the world, um, they will be able to blow things up successfully. Um, but in terms of, you know, strategic success, achieving the goals that they have, it's really hard to see how this works. Because, uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, the Houthis have, are very resilient. They've managed to survive uh, with their missiles uh, years of airstrikes by Saudis and the Saudis and, and UAE, both of which have very advanced U.S. aircraft. Um, and uh, they've managed to, to that. So overnight, you are unlikely, highly unlikely to get rid of all their missiles. Um, and they will then um, very likely strike back. Um, you know, this is the game that they were playing when they started. Um, it, you know, it's good for them. Uh, to have the great Satan, as the Iran, Iran and its allies like to talk about the U.S., to, to have them, uh, you know, engaged. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's the goal is to turn opinion against the U.S. and Israel in, in across the Middle East. Yeah, and indeed we don't know if there are any civilian casualties, um, but we know that the strikes took place this morning. Um, in terms of then the fact that the Houthis are proxies for Iran... Iran has also condemned the actions by the US, the UK and others. What more might we hear from Iran about this or what might be their role here now? Well, their, their reaction was relatively mild, mm. uh, which supports the idea um, uh, that actually no major player uh, in this conflict, which was begun by Hamas on October the 7th, um, no major player actually wants a regional conflict 
which is why it hasn't happened yet. Um, and it was interesting, you know, the, the way that they responded, it was relatively, it was a, a, a bland condemnation, which, you know, given the way that Iran, um, the rhetoric that often comes out of Tehran, that was that was pretty, uh, you know, pr- pretty moderate. Um, and Hezbollah, very interesting also, their response was to just to say, you know, this just proves that the U.S. Uh, is the backer of, you know, the Zionist state uh, in, in Gaza. Um, so that is, you know, that's, they are actually attaining what they want uh, from the Houthis. Uh, so uh, my, my, my guess is that we can be not complacent, but uh, because you can't control all these elements, and it's, it is extremely dangerous. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the signs are that the, it's still the case that none of the major players want uh, a, a, an all-out regional war. But having said that, Mark, you said at the start that escalation was almost inevitable from the Biden perspective. and The, that the Hez- strikes. The strikes, yes. sorry, yes. And that Hezbollah and the Houthis benefit from seeing the US as a sort of evil player in this world. Is there a path to de-escalation and what could it look like? Well, you know, remember that this uh, theatre is uh, quite distant from the theatre in, in Israel. Um, it's up to the Houthis entirely, uh, you know, how, whether they escalate or de-escalate. That's what the U.S. should be worried about. You know, essentially you have you know, a rogue militia in a failed state, mm. uh, which is determining uh, what the U.S. does. Um, and that is always a, a position you don't want to be in. Um, but, uh, you know, it is up to them. And if the Iranians don't want them uh, to start blowing up U.S. bases around the Middle East and therefore creating an escalation in which the U.S. may then strike Iran directly, uh, you know, th- those are the escalations that one's worried about. Okay, and so I mean, pointing to that, this multipolar world of of growing numbers of actors, um, you know, we should also think about Ukraine because the other thing that's happened for in terms of UK politics is that the Prime Minister um, has announced more aid and he's 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 gone to Ukraine. I mean, this in some ways is a little bit surprising now that the UK has got a couple of very significant foreign policy challenges, although we're tacking an incredibly close line uh, to to the United States. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, in Ukraine, it's quite interesting. The US, uh, you know, its hands are tied right at the moment by Congress and its uh, inability to pass uh, the necessary legislation to continue funding uh, Ukraine. So the the fact uh, the UK has always been uh, sort of out in front on Ukraine right mm. from the very beginning, um, and uh, this is another case in which they are now out in front of uh, of the US and to a lesser extent Europe. Um, uh, but nevertheless, going to Kiev, uh, offering uh, new money, um, is going to be very welcome at a time when. You know, the the really the Ukrainians have felt that they've lost uh, the spotlight, uh, the momentum, uh, and the risk for them uh, is very much that the the these sources of aid just dry up. That said, two point five billion is a relatively small amount in terms of what they need every month, uh, and ultimately, uh, what they really need. Uh, is air defense missiles, uh, strike missiles, long-range strike missiles. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, thank you so much for being with us this morning. That is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Mark Champion. 
While the focus in the Middle East may have shifted to Yemen, Israel is today outlining its defense to accusations that its military operations in Gaza amount to genocide. The case has been taken to the International Court of Justice by South Africa. Its lawyers gave their opening arguments yesterday. Let's speak to our legal editor, Karen Matusek, for more. Karen, what is South Africa's argument? The South African lawyers yesterday outlined their case in, in about three hours and provided a lot of details. And they they rely on the whole on the on the heavy toll on the civilians. There are now, according to uh, uh, the Hamas authorities, there are twenty three thousand deaths in Palestine, uh, in 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 Gaza. There's a heavy humanitarian toll on the on the population. Uh, you know, the whole life is affected. Hospitals, everything. So they say all of this amounts to to a genocide. Israel is committing genocide. And they even put it in a context of the longer, longer conflict in the Middle East and say that has been plotted by Israel all along. Mm. Israel denies the allegations. What have they been saying? Well, they they are at this very moment arguing their, ca- their case in, in the Hague. And they say they are defending against a terrorist attack. In fact, they are saying they are defending against the uh, the largest case of murders of Jews uh, in one day since the Holocaust. And they uh, they are saying they are not targeting the Palestinians as such. They are, def- they are only targeting Hamas and they are trying what they can do to defend the, the civilian population in the Strip. So of all the countries that could have brought this kind of legal action, why South Africa? Why are they taking this case? Well, this case has been filed under the Convention to Prevent Genocide, and any state who is a, a member of this convention, and both Israel and South Africa are, could file such a such a case. And uh, that's kind of an exemption exception to to many other rules in international law. And South Africa, I think, uses this as some sort of strategic litigation, as we call it sometimes. You know, you you file a case, even if you. If you know you you won't be able to actually bring about a substantial change materially of the situation, the case can help you in in your political campaign, in your diplomatic strategic uh, uh, campaign. And I think that's one of the main reasons South Africa is filing this case. They know pretty well, even if they win and now an injunction, say, ordering Israel to stop immediately, Israel probably won't comply because we had the similar and uh, the court issued a similar injunction in the dispute between. Ukraine and Russia, and Russia, of course, as we know, didn't comply with that injunction. So you 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 do it because you want this ruling, because you want this discussion going on, and it, it has a wider impact than than actually stopping anything materially. Mm. Uh, the Labour leader, you know, f- in terms of the UK angle, the the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has joined the South African delegation at the ICJ in The Hague. How much support does the case have, though, from politicians? Yeah, you can see from that step that the South African strategy is already working. There are more and more uh, states or, or people from various countries, even from countries that, you know, are, are deemed allies of Israel who who want to support this litigation. Any other member country of the of that convention can join the suit. So, um, you, you know, you, you hear voices from Belgium saying they're considering something like that. There's even an opposition politician in Spain asking for things like that. And uh, of course, this, you know, this brings a bit, the the EU, for example, you know, has been very quiet on the whole, mm. on the whole litigation, because Germany, of course, is considering joining uh, the Israeli side. So this has, uh, this has already worked out for the South Africans. 
Yeah, and and I mean the the um, pushback and the concern from Israel is is absolutely clear in the sort of um, language that the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uses, um, quoting the hypocrisy of South Africa screams to high heaven. That was the quote from from Netanyahu, um, and also that. The, the Israelis see some irony in the fact that they are being accused of genocide, given that it it was you know stemming from the whole term. In fact, stems from World War Two and the Holocaust. So, you know, from the Israeli perspective, is this seen as sort of yet a, another sort of way to target Israel? In some senses, fundamentally anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean that's that's actually uh, the way they. Uh, Tal Becker, the first lawyer appearing for Israel this morning, opened his statement. He said, you know, Israel, you know, you don't have to tell Israel what a genocide is. Israel was the first country to ratify the the genocide convention in 1949 or 1950 or something very early on. So they 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 said again, you know, this whole convention is, was is only in place because of the killing of six million of Jews uh, in World War Two. So yeah, it it really has it, it gets this this kind of drive about you know Jews being being uh, being uh, alleged to commit a, a genocide is seen as an outrageous outrageous uh, allegation. In terms of what happens next in this court case, how long might it last, and, and what do you think um, the outcome might mean? What's the sort of process now in terms of the International Court of Justice? These two days of hearings yesterday and today will only just, you know, only devoted to the issue should the court issue an immediately restrained order against Israel telling them to stop every stop, stop the operation immediately to, to, to avoid further harm. And we expect this ruling to come within the next two or three weeks, maybe four, maybe faster. This is how, how it was in previous cases. But that's not the end of the case. The underlying litigation will continue. The court will continue to hear arguments, and the first ruling isn't about whether this is genocide or not. It's more about this: what what's immediate step needs to be taken, and the long-running case will probably last a few years. Like the case against uh, between Ukraine and Russia is still pending. These cases mm-hmm. usually take years. Well, thank you very much for coming on to tell us about it, Karen, and we'll be following it closely. Thank you very much. That's our legal editor, Karen Matusek. I mean, kind of the lesson I'm taking from today is that foreign policy is already affecting British politics in ways that we hadn't expected in 2024. And that is before we get to the US elections. Iowa caucus is on Monday. Yeah, and this kicks off, of course, the 2024 presidential race. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm James And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.